Welcome to the Glenn Mercer Show, where we talk all things vegan. If you're not already vegan, no worries, we'll get you there. If you are, tune in for health advice, information on climate change, and all the damage done by our most destructive industry, animal agriculture. We'll also talk cooking, theater, film, and culture. My two reasons for starting this podcast, to entertain, to inform, and to make people vegan. Oh, that's three. Shit. Hello and welcome to the Glenn Merzer Show. I'm your eponymous host. Or maybe I'm Glenn Merzer and this is my eponymous show. I'm not sure. Anyway, welcome to the show. You can find it on all your basic podcast platforms and on YouTube at The Glenn Merzer Show. Please don't forget to subscribe. We have a very special guest today. Meg Kelly is a veganic gardener. That's right, a veganic gardener from Quebec in Canada. And she is the um, co-founder of the Veganic Agriculture Network. Uh, she's also a uh, co-founder of uh, goveganic.net and learnveganic.com. Meg, welcome to the show. Hi there, Glenn. Wonderful to be here. So how, did, how and when did you get into veganic gardening? Uh, it was about 15 years ago. Uh, I had been vegan for a few years and I started to get curious about how my vegan food was grown. I mean, I had already kind of made that decision that, you know, I didn't want to eat any animal products, uh, you know, because of, um, you know, just respect toward animals. And uh, then a few years later, I thought, you know, I should start taking some responsibility for where my food come from, comes from, at least learn how it's grown and learn how to grow my own. And at that point, I found out that a lot of fruits and veggies are grown using animal byproducts. And so, you know, things like factory farm manure, uh, slaughterhouse waste, like, you know, blood meal and bone meal and fishery byproducts mm -hmm. are very frequently used to fertilize food. And that's, you know, even true or even especially true when it comes to organic agriculture. Uh, so when I decided to start looking into that more, I realized that a lot of the food, you know, that I was purchasing wasn't grown in a way that corresponded with my values. And that if I was going to start growing my own food, I definitely wanted to do it in a vegan way. Uh, so yeah, I was I was really really lucky um, that when I first got interested in veganics, I met somebody named Steph who became my best friend, and he had already been learning how to garden in a vegan way for a few years. So I learned along with him, and yeah, I've been gardening in a totally vegan way using all plant-based fertilizers uh, for about 15 years now. And what do you grow in your garden? Uh, all sorts of stuff. I, I really like to concentrate on perennial plants because they just keep producing year after year. And so I have a lot of strawberries growing in my garden, uh, blueberries, I have pear trees, apple trees, and uh, a lot of perennial herbs like uh, oregano. Um, but I also have things that I plant every year like lettuce and peas and beans and potatoes. And uh, yeah, I, I love to concentrate on stuff that's low maintenance, stuff that's easy to grow. Uh, but I also really like to try growing things that I can't find in the grocery store. So, you know, one thing I've been growing is hascaps, which is a really awesome berry. Uh, it's kind of- Has, like Hascaps? Yeah, it I've looks like an elongated blueberry. And okay. kind of sweet, kind of sour, but I love growing stuff like that where 
you know, it's only by having a garden that you can, you know, eat these okay. foods. And so it's a way to diversify our diets too. Now, how much of your diet would you say you, uh, you grow? You know, it's a good question because it really depends on the summer season versus the winter mm -hmm. season for okay. sure. Uh, in the summer, I'd say that, you know, most of my fruits and veggies are coming from our gardens or uh, from stuff that I wild harvest too. Uh, but oh. once it's the winter here in Canada, it's a long winter, you know, so in the winter, I certainly buy more fruits and veggies and also grow some sprouts. So in the winter, it's back to the grocery store a little bit. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. Um, now, you say you also wild harvest. So uh, mushrooms, what do you wild harvest? Uh, mostly berries right now. Okay. Uh, lots of blueberries and raspberries in the area that I live in. Um, but I also like to find things like, you know, interesting recipes I can make with dandelions. You know, like the, the entire dandelion plant is edible. Uh, I've created recipes that are you know, a little bit like cauliflower wings, but instead of using cauliflower, we use dandelion flowers right. and uh, and things like that. So, you know, I like to just experiment with recipes as long as I know something's edible, as long as I know it's good for my health. Uh, from there, I like that challenge of exploring and seeing like, what can I do with this? You know, is right. there is there a way I can make this tasty? And uh, yeah. I, I had one of the stupidest days of my life a few months <laughs> ago with dandelions. Oh, yeah? My wife mentioned to me that we had too many dandelions growing in our front yard. You know, our neighbors have beautifully manicured front yards and <laughs> ours was full of what they might consider weeds, dandelions. <laughs> so she said, what are we going to do about it? And I said, well, I guess I'll pull the dandelions. So, I, you know, I'm certainly not going to spray. Yeah. So I went with a tool and my hands and knees and I pulled out about 100 dandelions. And then I said to my wife, I'm going to the grocery store. What do you want me to get? And she said, you know, get some dandelions. <laughs> so then I went and I bought some dandelion, which made me feel very stupid. You know, there's a lot of things that we can eat that are around us that we don't even think of. I mean, even, uh, you know, one time I was gardening uh, with a group of people and one of them started harvesting the broccoli leaves off the broccoli plants. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know if you can eat those. Is that okay to eat? Right. And she was like, yeah, why not? And then I started thinking about it and realized, you know, plants like broccoli are so closely related to plants like kale and collards that broccoli right. leaves are essentially an equivalent of collard leaves. And yet when we go to the grocery store, we just see the broccoli head and then when we have this plant growing in our gardens that has something that's equivalent to collard leaves, oftentimes we're not even harvesting them. We're not even thinking about whether we can harvest them. And there's some stuff we shouldn't eat, like don't eat the leaves off of your tomato plant because that will make you sick. But, you know, when we actually start just doing the research, can I eat broccoli leaves? You know, can I eat, uh, you know, the greens from beets and things like that? There's so many yeah. things that if we don't see it in the grocery store, it doesn't even occur to us that we can eat it. Yeah, I've often wondered who who determined which leaves we can eat and which ones we can't. <laughs> there, there are probably a lot of leaves that we can eat that we don't realize we can eat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Somebody needs to would do the research on that. <laughs> probably all kinds of foods that we can have that we don't know we can have. Yeah. Um, now, um, when you started veganic gardening, did you know anything about it? Not really. I, I had 
uh, grown up in the city. We did have a garden at my house when I was growing up, but uh, I didn't participate that much. And, and so, you know, I was starting almost from scratch. Uh, and again, I was quite lucky to have, you know, a, a new best friend who was actually very skilled and who had studied agriculture. And so uh, it was a really nice introduction because I, it meant that I was having success with gardening right away because I was able to kind of participate in someone else's gardens. Uh, and then over the years, I started creating my own gardens, you know, at community gardens and at neighbors' houses. And just, uh, you know, even at times where I didn't necessarily have a lot of access uh, to my own land because I was usually renting, uh, I find that, you know, there's so many areas where we can find access to land if we start making connections in our community. Uh, so yeah, I've just started putting gardens in all sorts of places. And uh, and especially because I have this deep interest in what types of techniques can we use that are veganic? You know, what's kind of that wide diversity of techniques we can use? Uh, you know, we've experimented so much with a wide variety of techniques over the years just to see if they work. You know, we might come across a technique in a book and we say, well, that's a beginner technique. Let's try it. And so, you know, it's kind of like experimenting in the kitchen where you decide to, you know, try cooking with all the different legumes or all the different grains just to see what they're like. I mean, we've kind of been doing that in the garden of just saying, OK, there's there's this technique, there's that technique, there's this interesting vegetable, like let's try a little bit of everything and just see what works. And uh, yeah, it's it's just a wonderful, joyful experience <laughs> to, to kind of interact with nature like that and just to, you know, start with some little seeds and just to end up with a flourishing garden. Uh-huh. Now there is a form of agriculture that we hear about these days called regenerative. And it's often involving animals, this regenerative animal agriculture where they, uh, they take cows, I guess, and they, they, they rotate them from paddock to paddock and they, uh, they try to treat them very kindly before they eventually ship them off to the slaughterhouse. Um, what do you know about regenerative agriculture? And of course that, isn't by definition veganic, but it, I think it can be. There could be such a thing as veganic regenerative agriculture. So what are the principles of regenerative agriculture versus veganic? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that regenerative is a word that we really do need to reclaim because it has been very much associated with cows, uh, sort of in the way that calcium has been associated with milk, well, regenerative has been kind of falsely associated with cows by default. Uh, but with regenerative, what we're really talking about is regenerating soil, which right. in and of itself is a good thing. And in and of itself doesn't need to involve having a lot of, you know, domesticated ruminants uh, involved in the process. So and in other words, are you saying, Meg, are you saying that there is nothing magical about cow manure? Is that your claim? Cow manure is plants that were eaten and digested. And the fact of the matter is there's other ways for plants to, to decompose. I mean, plants can decompose with the help of the soil organisms. Uh, you know, if we look at uh, soils in forests, for example, I mean, soils in forests are some of the best soils out there. And right. they're, they're produced because some leaves fell on the ground, some twigs fell on the ground, and those were decomposed by the organisms in the soil. And most of our 
agricultural lands are in deforested areas, you know, so it was usually florists that built that up. And so in our gardens, we actually use um, the uh, what's called chipped branch wood. So it's basically like small tree branches that have been chipped up, uh, some leaves, and we'll just build up our soil that way, you know, and that's kind of the way it's been done over time, at least in the area that I live, there certainly weren't cows walking around here. There might've been an occasional moose, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, um, and the fact of the matter is there's billions of microorganisms, you know, even in, uh, you know, a, a handful of healthy soils. So, you know, there's there's not necessarily any particular reason from, from my point of view of why we'd need to import domesticated animals from another continent and, and bring them in, uh, you know, and, and we can see just the mass devastation that's happened in general from having animal agriculture and, you know, the deforestation that's happened. And, you know, I think we can just grow on so much less land if we stop having domesticated animals in the process. And I think we need to reclaim the word regenerative. And I would qualify it with regenerative vegan agriculture or vegan regenerative agriculture or regenerative veganic. I, I'd yeah. always add that qualification so people know it's different than the version right. with cows. But uh, yeah, there's, I mean. So regenerative no agriculture is going to um, involve no tilling of the soil. Yep, right? no tilling. Yeah. And, and, and no spraying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just building up the carbon by having a lot of above ground plants growing, having a lot of deep root systems, uh, ideally involving more perennial plants, because perennial plants are there, they're there year round, you know, not, not just an above ground part, but, you know, this below ground part is alive year round and keeping the soil life alive. So it really has to do with caring for the soil and making sure there's organic matter added to the soil uh, that will break down. But yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to regenerate soils and it certainly uh, can be done veganically. So you, so you are willing to go out on a limb and challenge Al Gore and other proponents of regenerative animal agriculture and claim that there is nothing magical about cow manure. That's what you're claiming. <laughs> cow manure right? is whatever, I, it's the plants that a cow ate. And so- There I mean, you go. I'm just going to give an example. We have I agree our, with you. There is nothing have, magical yeah. about cow manure. Yeah, we, we have because, I, I say this because the the proponents of regenerative agriculture and in parenthesis, that's regenerative animal agriculture. Mm -hmm. They they claim that the basis, the whole scientific basis for their theory, that this is what can can make animal agriculture a sustainable practice. The whole basis for their theory is that there's something magical about cow manure, that it builds up the soil. And unless we do it, the earth is going to disappear because <laughs> you just need that magical cow manure to build up the soil. And if you don't have it, it's all going to be the Sahara. And that's yeah. just not true, is it? Yeah, I, I have a, a garden that's uh, made essentially entirely by putting hay everywhere. And so there was a woman back in the 1950s named Ruth Stout, and she just kind of got sick of, you know, waiting around for someone to come and till her soil every year. And she noticed a bunch of plants growing out of a bale of hay. So she thought, well, what if I just put bales of hay everywhere? <laughs> what if I just put hay in my garden and let it decompose? And then she found it was a really good form of fertilizer. And well, the reason why is because what is cow manure? 
a lot of the time it's just hay that was pooped out. So she was like, well, what if we take hay that wasn't pooped out? (laughs) And we just put that in our garden. And, you know, it does end up being decomposed by, you know, worms and and bacteria and fungi and beetles and, you know, all sorts of little critters. So you still end up with a form of micro manure. It's just like it's a manure that's, you know, naturally made by animals who naturally live in the area, who are free living. Uh, you know, and no no domestication needs to be involved. Uh, so, I mean, that's all, you know, manure just contains whatever the plants contain. You know, if that manure contains like any nutrients at all, phosphorus or nitrogen or calcium or whatever, it, that's right. just from the plants that the cow ate. Right. And this way we avoid all the harms mm-hmm. of, of uh, domesticated animals. Um, so um, you've also got a business mm-hmm. called LearnVeganic.com in which you, I take it, produce videos and do training for people. How yeah. does this work? Yeah. So we teach an online course. Uh, it's a seven-week online course where people can learn uh, a wide variety of veganic gardening techniques with us. Uh, so whether somebody has a backyard or a big lot in the countryside or just a balcony where they're going to be, you know, gardening in containers, um, we basically show people techniques uh, so that they can garden veganically in any situation. Um, and yeah, it's it's a wonderful course because it brings together people who have, you know, common goals, common values. And uh, we have, you know, Q&A sessions in the course too, uh, so that we can, you know, help people with their individual gardening projects. Uh, So yeah, we started that about two years ago. And uh, it's just really been a wonderful journey to to help people uh, get started or to, you know, improve upon their their veganic gardening uh, skills. And is this movement building? You're getting more and more veganic or would-be veganic gardeners contacting you? Yeah, and I think as a whole, I can say that the veganic movement as a whole has been growing quite a bit in the last few years. I've seen, you know, much more movement in the veganic sphere in the last three or four years than I had in in previous years. Uh, So I think on, you know, the gardening side with us and other people who are putting out, you know, new books about veganic uh, and new farms that are getting on board with veganics too, um, I can really see the veganic movement as a whole is is starting to grow. much more quickly. Now, you're a veganic gardener. Yeah. There are also some veganic farmers. Yeah. Do you have contact with veganic farmers? Have you observed their operations? What can you tell us about veganic farming? Yeah. So I went and visited a bunch of veganic farms uh, more around kind of 2008 to 2010. We, we went around North America and visited a number of veganic farms and, and, uh, you know, interviewed farmers and, uh, you know, tried to show the world more more about what they were doing. And uh, today we're in contact with veganic farmers more through, uh, you know, online means and, and, you know, running veganic meetups and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a veganic farm map, uh, which you can find on our website, goveganic.net, which was created by uh, Mona Seymour, who's a, a professor who has been studying uh, veganic agriculture. And uh, in England, there's another group that's called uh, the Vegan Organic Network, which is veganorganic.net. And they have uh, a map uh, that's for uh, farms in England uh, and Europe. Uh, So, yeah, there's um, 
it's actually really, really wonderful to see this growing interest in farmers for, you know, uh, either starting new farms in a veganic way or converting over to veganic. And I'll just mention too that in Europe, there's kind of a, a parallel movement that's called biocyclic. And so, uh, you know, there are different terms that are used to describe veganic. Uh, in England, actually, the main term is stock free. So in England, stock free. Yeah, because there's no livestock. Okay. And so, uh, so in England, uh, the certification program over there is called Certified Stock Free Organic. Mm -hmm. Whereas here in North America, there's a new certification program for farms that's called Certified Veganic. So the terminology can switch a bit from country to country. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful just to see, um, you know, farmers just putting these techniques into action, proving that it's viable. Because uh, I think there can be a lot of skepticism around it. Uh, so I think it's important to have some farmers who are just, you know, putting it into action on a commercial scale, uh, you know, where they can help inspire other farmers to make that shift too. Now, when you're a farmer, you're in a business. Yep. And, you know, you have to pay the bills. So from a financial perspective, if you're going veganic versus organic, is it is it tougher financially to um, to to do the you know the fertilizer inputs if they're all veganic versus what's available to you if you're going organic? Yeah, so from an actual dollar to dollar perspective, I I, I would have to ask people who have made that transition, and, and mm -hmm. I, I can't necessarily speak to that directly from experience. Um, but with veganic. Um, especially when we're talking about farming, you know, one of the main ideals is to try to produce all of your own fertilizer on site. Uh, so that can be things like growing clover, because clover is a nitrogen fixing plant. Uh, alfalfa is also nitrogen fixing. So those are plants where basically when you grow them, they end up taking in nitrogen from the air. Uh, so, you know, they're pretty amazing. Uh, it can involve growing something like hay to use as a fertilizer or growing other types of grains and legumes that get fed back to the soil um, as they're called green manures. If you, if you basically grow something just for a few weeks to, to feed it back to the soil, that's called a green manure. And uh, so veganic farmers really concentrate as much as possible on growing their own fertilizers. And when it comes down to it, it takes less land to grow your own fertilizer veganically than to grow it with animals. Um, so, um, and I mean, the fact of the matter is there's some farmers who are growing essentially veganically because they don't even have access to manure. Uh, you know, there are some situations in which people end up growing veganically, not sort of out of ethics, but more by default, because manure is something that people may or may not have access to depending on where they live. Whereas growing your own fertilizers on your own land in a plant-based way is something that every farmer can do. Now, from an ethical standpoint, if our goal is to put an end to animal agriculture. Is, is the use of manure um, something that helps the bottom line of the animal agriculture operations? For sure, for sure. I mean, much like leather finances animal agriculture, well, if, I mean, if, if you go to a garden center and you buy buy blood meal or bone meal or factory farm chicken manure, that's financing animal agriculture too. Uh, you know, and the same thing if, you know, farmers are buying those inputs. Um, so yeah, it's it's one way to just kind of 
break that link that's currently between, you know, fruit and vegetable production and factory farming, because, you know, obviously we don't really want that link to be there. Um, you know, and I think that's, again, one of the reasons why it's so important to have some of these pioneering farmers who are showing that it's possible, because if we want to envisage a world in which there's not animal agriculture, well, then we need to get animal agriculture out of vegetable production, you right. know, and, you know, that's, it is one of the important steps <laughs> in terms of moving toward a vegan world. Now, are there veganic businesses creating fertilizer for sale in nurseries and other yeah, places? No I would say more online because it's a bit more of a niche mm -hmm. thing right now. Um, I walked into a garden center for what it was the first time in years I had gone into a garden center and I was kind of surprised that, you know, I knew it was true, but it just brought it home that everything that was for sale was chemical or animal. There was almost nothing in the garden center that I could purchase that was veganic except maybe some wood chip mulch or something like that. And so uh, you really have to go to kind of you know, more niche companies. I, in the US, for example, there's a company that's called Good Dirt uh, and Good Dirt uh, makes all vegan products. So they have things like soil mixes and fertilizers. Um, I encourage people to make their own fertilizer as much as possible. Uh, and that can be as simple as making our own compost. You know, we're just taking leaves from our neighborhood. We're taking our food scraps, maybe the food scraps of our friends too. And uh, if we want to make more compost and on a home scale for gardening, you know, oftentimes just making a lot of compost, I uh, can mostly do the trick. Uh, I, I end up harvesting plants in my community like comfrey and nettles that are really, really high nutrient plants. And then I'll feed those to my garden. Um, but yeah, there, I would really like to see more companies making kind of ready-made veganic fertilizers because I think that there's, um, you know, especially for people who are starting out in gardening, I either the, kind of the easiest thing to do is to buy a bag of fertilizer. Uh, so I would like to see more options available in more countries. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's it's it's one of those areas that's starting to pick up. Okay, we're gonna take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. All right, if you've ever wanted to show off your plant-based lifestyle and do it in style, here's your chance. We have some of the most amazing t-shirts, hats, accessories, coffee mugs, and more at shop.realmeneatplants.com. We have statement t-shirts that will bring a smile to everyone's face. I love the I want tofu tonight tea. Plus, we have podcast teas, real women eat plants gear, real kids eat plants, and real people eat plants, just in case men, women, and kids didn't cover it all. Yeah, we love you and love that you want to show off that healthy lifestyle of yours. Again, check out our high-quality gear at shop.realmeneatplants.com and enjoy. Okay, we're talking with Meg Kelly from Quebec, who is a veganic gardener, and she has the websites goveganic.net and learnveganic.com. She teaches veganic gardening. And so let's get to this to the origin. When when did you become vegan and why? Yeah, I became vegan in the early 2000s. Uh, I would say it was a slow process in many ways. I, I remember finding out, 
I'd say around the age of six or seven that that uh, meat was made out of animals. And that was a, a bit of a rude awakening. It and was shocking, wasn't it? it? It was. I actually made a joke at the dinner table because I thought chicken and chicken were homonyms. You know, kind oh, of like yeah. kind of like we'd make jokes about what if a hot dog was made out of hot dogs, but we knew right. it was funny. We knew it wasn't made out of dogs. And I made a joke, wouldn't it be funny if this chicken we were eating was really like chicken, the bird. Yeah. And then everyone laughed. And I thought, okay, my joke is funny. And then it turned out, I, I found out in that, in that conversation that it was actually a bird. And I was asking, yeah. well, where, where is its head? Where is its feathers? And I kind of got all these explanations. And that's when I was realizing, okay, these are actually bones. These are wings. These are legs. I just didn't yeah. make the connection before. Yeah. And, and I uh, have some bad news for you about turkey, too. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And fish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, I just hadn't made the connection yet. And it's, then it's funny, but people don't say cow. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Or pig. Yeah. Or pig. Yeah. There are always yeah. euphemisms for those. Yeah. And I kind of started realizing at that time, I'm like, oh, when my parents say they're going to the market to get a leg of lamb, that's exactly that's a what a leg of lamb. Yeah. Yeah. And it just took me a while to, to make that connection. Uh, and so it was more around that age, I realized I was uncomfortable with it, but it was more when I was around 10 or 11 that I started cutting out which animals I ate one by one <laughs> slowly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was more when I was kind of in my late teens, early 20s, that I made the switch to becoming vegan. Um, I'd say it was partly just learning to like lentils, learning to like broccoli. You know, I was a, I was one of those kids who just ate white pasta with with cheese on it and chicken and basically nothing else and so you know there was that kind of process of actually learning to like a lot of vegan foods and uh you know watching some documentaries going to a veg festival doing a bunch of reading online and uh you know eventually I made the switch and uh yeah it was it was a bit of a process but I'm glad I got there yeah now I take it you were a healthy young woman anyway so there wasn't a health issue involved no right? I, I'd say I'd say the only health issue I had was a couple of times I tried going vegan when I was about 16, but that uh -huh. came down to eating a pile of white pasta for a week straight. <laughs> realizing that wasn't working. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, uh, yeah. So that, but no, there weren't any, any real health uh, motivations. So it was really about, right. about the animals. Right. Um, and um, once you became vegan, did, did that affect your whole approach to to other things in life, to social life, to um, to uh, the work you want to do, and so forth. Yeah, I think that you know, around the time I became vegan, I was also starting to get interested in environmentalism, and you know, I think all of these things kind of ended up going hand in hand for me with kind of more consciously evaluating what I wanted in life and. Um, you know, I, I did a whole lot of, uh, I'd say, challenges for a few years where I'd give myself a challenge, like I'm only going to eat local for a month or I'm just going to eat unpackaged food for a month and things like that. You know, just, um, you know, just kind of fun challenges that made me think differently about how I was consuming. And uh, and even from, I would say, in general in life, I'm, I'm a, a bit of an anti-consumerist. And so, yeah, I think that uh, I think it's a lot that that conscious process of just what do I want my life to look like? What do I want my choices to look like? And, uh, you know, it certainly made me more interested in working, you know, for nonprofits or, or in the environmental sector too. 
Did it cause any um, conflict or tension with any friends or family when you went vegan? Not really. Uh, you know, my, my family was always quite receptive to it. And uh, have you know, any of them gone vegan? No one has gone vegan, but they mm -hmm. are very accommodating. And okay. so, you know, they, they eat vegan when I'm around. And so, you know, uh, so no one else has sort of changed their diet long term, but there hasn't been any conflict either. And um, yeah, I think more than anything, it just took me a couple of years, I would say after becoming vegan to start feeling comfortable, just owning that and telling people that. You know, there, there was that awkwardness for a while where I thought, well, what if someone invites me over and, you know, I'm not quite sure. And now most people just know I'm vegan. But if someone invites me over for dinner and I'm not sure if they know, I'll say, you just realize you invited a vegan over for dinner, right? <laughs> and, you know. Well, ask them if they watch the Glenn Mercer show. Yeah. Because then they'll know. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, I found over the years, it's become very easy. I think there's just that initial switch of identity in a sense that, that, you know, can be a little bit difficult to navigate if we feel like we might be inconveniencing people or we're not sure if we want to sort of declare it. And then once we become really comfortable in it, I feel like everything becomes a lot easier. Now, uh, do you, uh, what's your favorite vegetable to grow? Oh, my favorite veggie. That's a good question, because if you asked me my favorite plant, I would have said strawberries, but that's a fruit. So let me think about my favorite vegetable here. Um, I'm going to say climbing peas. I mean, climbing beans, rather. Yeah, Climbing some, beans. Yeah, I have a particular favorite bean that I love to grow that's called rattlesnake climbing beans. And uh, they're just... That doesn't sound vegan. It doesn't, but it is. It's just okay. got a rattlesnake uh, pattern on it. Okay, and so that rattlesnake isn't like chicken. No, it is not. But this isn't really a rattlesnake. <laughs> it is not really a rattlesnake. Okay. It's really a climbing bean. <laughs> okay. Good good point, though. Good point. Right. I could have been tricked yet again. Um, but it's just a really nice bean. It just climbs really high, and it's just great to eat right off of the, the vine. It's just got, you know, a nice snap, a nice crunch. Okay. And um, do you sometimes make dinners at home where you say, everything on this plate I have grown? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I enjoy doing that sometimes. I, it doesn't always happen by default, but if I intentionally make it uh -huh. happen, it definitely does. And um, I say that happens most when potato season, you know, when the potato harvest comes in, because the uh -huh. potatoes are what can really, you know, provide, uh, you know, a, a good dose of calories, whereas a lot of other stuff that we grow in our uh -huh. garden is more more yes. like a salad or it would need to be accompanied by a grain. Yeah. So what kinds of potatoes do you grow? Do you grow purple potatoes, my favorite? Yeah, I have grown some purple potatoes. I have another type of potato that honestly I can't remember the name of. Um, I think it's banana potato, but I'm not I'm not I'm not quite sure of the names because I, I buy them all in French and so I see all the names and <laughs> uh, but I have one type of potato that I love because it just keeps giving interesting shaped potatoes. Sometimes they'll look like a uh -huh. person, sometimes they'll look like a shark or a seal. And uh, you oh, know, that they, doesn't sound vegan again. It doesn't, you're right. But I just love pulling potatoes out of the ground that just look yeah. a little bit funky, that don't really look like a regular yeah. potato. And um, so you have potatoes of all different colors? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I love potatoes because they're just, they're so easy to grow. They're so easy. You know, other 
plants, you have to baby them more, you have to really be there, you know, when you've just planted the seed, you have to make sure you're watering it, you know, every day so that, you know, the seed, little seedling doesn't dry out. With potatoes, you just kind of stick them in the ground, you walk away, <laughs> you know, maybe you weed once or twice during the season and you come back and you harvest. And then you can plant those same potatoes the next year to get more, you know, it's just kind of an ongoing, you know, potatoes that keep on giving. So that's definitely one of my favorite uh, plants to grow. Now you have not one, but four gardens, right? Yeah, I have four gardens right now. And in in what degree of urban or rural areas are these four gardens? Okay, one of them is very urban, uh, which is a community garden. Two of them are kind of up in the mountains near a lake and okay. uh, kind of near the boreal forest. So basically surrounded by boreal forest, but you know, some little areas that are, are cleared by the near the houses. And then the other one's just out in the Quebec countryside, uh, kind of in a very, very rural area. Uh, essentially it's on a farm, but it's just, you know, the, the, the kitchen garden on the farm. Um, so yeah, I just try to put gardens wherever I find myself. And one of my gardens is at a neighbor's house. It was a neighbor who said her garden was getting too big for her and she was thinking of, you know, making it half the size. And I said, well, I can garden the other half if you want. And so, you know, I think it's wonderful to see the opportunities that are there to see land that isn't being used as much as it could be. Now, Meg, have you been affected by the terrible fires this year in Canada? You know what? The way the wind blew, it didn't affect us here. Uh, wow. I think, we, I think we had one day of slight smog, uh, you know, smoky uh, smog. And uh, I had people, you know, calling me, asking if I was okay, writing to me, saying, you know, do, what about the forest fires? And I was saying, well, if no one was telling me about it, I wouldn't even know what was happening. Uh, <laughs> you know? I got affected in the Midwest and you didn't get affected in Quebec. No, I think the, the dominant winds must have been opposite to, to the usual, because usually it's blowing from the west to the east, but I'm, right. I was, I guess it was going east to west, or it was right. blowing down. It seems down. like it was going a lot south, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't be so happy about it. It was smoky here. Um, so, um, is, did the, have the Canadian fires affected the uh, political climate in Canada in terms of people talking about climate change? It's a good question. I, I think to some degree, anytime fires happen in your own area, it starts to make it real. And mm -hmm. I would have, you know, if I had been downwind instead of upwind, I would have probably had more of that experience too yeah. of being confronted by it. But I think it's a situation where you know, millions of people just became confronted by this unpleasant reality all at once. And, you know, and and in the U.S. too. And I mean, we can see, too, that, I mean, climate change doesn't stop at borders. I mean, this was a fire in Canada that was mostly affecting people in the U.S. And so, you know, regardless of whether it's air quality or, you know, waterways that are being polluted, we can see that, you know, where the problem happens isn't necessarily the only area that's affected. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't been keeping up on to what degree it's affecting the, the political landscape right. uh, necessarily, but I, yeah, I think it is making it real for people. Yeah. I'm just hoping it doesn't become the new normal the way fire became the new normal in California. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm hoping it doesn't become the new normal in Canada. Um, 
Are you planning to have more and more gardens? Or are you going to stop at four? <laughs> it, it depends. I'm, I'm going to have uh, some, uh, some of my gardens are going to be moving around a little bit in the next year or so as I move around. Uh, you know, I have some gardens that are um, essentially above the soil where I've kind of added my own soil or made my own soil that I add on kind of on top of the grass. And so if I move, I can actually take my dirt with me and I can take my plants with me. Uh, so I'm going to have at least one of them that's moving around. So and you are a specialist in mobile veganic <laughs> gardening. You know that's what? a niche. Actually, on that note, I, I am a specialist in mobile gardening because uh, back in 2010, I actually grew a garden on a bicycle. And wow. I grew, yeah. wait a minute, you grew a garden on a bicycle? Yeah, one time I grew a garden on a bicycle. It was I'm actually, guessing the bicycle had a basket or something. It wasn't even that. I grew wheatgrass on the fender and on the frame. Wheatgrass on the fender. Wow. Yeah, it was basically the front of my bicycle just had wheatgrass like sprouting out of it. It was it was mm. an interesting challenge. It was uh, way, way too high maintenance. I wouldn't do it again, mm. but but it was fun to attempt to make a mobile garden. I even had one spinning in the wheel. It was like on the hub. <laughs> wow. You know, you could grow more food if you trade in the bicycle for a truck. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're going to move your gardens around. Do you see yourself ever becoming a veganic farmer? Uh, that's a good question. If I did, it would probably be something very small scale, maybe next to other uh, activities. Um, I have considered in the past, you know, the idea of perhaps producing uh, seeds veganically. Uh, there, you know, there's some uh, veganic seed companies starting up, which is exciting. Um, or if I do ever end up you know, going kind of the commercial farming route, it would likely be producing perennial plants for other people's gardens. You know, I think that's one of the nicest things that we can produce is things like strawberry plants and blueberry plants and raspberry plants that other people can grow at their houses. Uh, you know, and just, I think it kind of amplifies the effect, uh, you know, in terms of um, having people's yards, you know, turn into these, you know, little oasises that, you know, mm -hmm. can welcome wildlife and that have a lot of food growing there. Um, so my focus is really more than anything on how we can kind of amplify that effect of more and more people growing food at their own homes. So whether it's through teaching online courses or, or if I do eventually kind of have some sort of commercial farm, I think I would always be concentrating on, you know, how we can get more people growing. Now, if people go to learnveganic.com and they want to learn your techniques and they enroll in an, uh, in an online course, do they have any opportunity of personal contact with you? Yeah, for sure. So in our summer session that's on right now, uh, our summer session is kind of a self-study version where people can watch the course videos on their own time and then have a one-on-one -on -one Q and A with me uh, so that we can talk in detail about your garden together. Uh, and then in around February, March, we offer a group session uh, where we all follow the course together for seven weeks. And that involves uh, several group Q and A's where people can you know, meet other people. So kind of depending on whether someone would like you know, to, to meet other veganic gardeners and have group Q&As or whether they'd like to have, you know, individual support, you know, there's options for, for both of those. Okay, so you can go to learnveganic.com if you want to learn more about veganic gardening. Tell us the, uh, the mission of goveganic.net. 
Yeah, for sure. And and first, I would just like to mention too uh, that if people go on learnveganic.com/materials. Uh, we have a free guide there to 20 veganic materials for your plant-based garden. So if you'd like to go check that out, that's a really good way to kind of get introduced uh, to what we do and to some veganic techniques. And yeah, so we have our other website, which is goveganic.net, which we started back in 2008. And uh, it's that's the Veganic Agriculture Network website. And our goal is really to promote veganic farming and gardening uh, with a bit of a special focus on North America. Because uh, when we started that website back in 2008, uh, there really wasn't any veganic organization that was focused on North America. Uh, so uh, we sh we have profiles of veganic farmers in North America. Uh, we have a farm map up, uh, but we also just uh, introduce a lot of different techniques uh, and books that are available about veganic and you know other resources. Uh, so yeah, you can spend hours looking through that website. There's a lot of pages that we've added over the years. Uh, yeah, so it's um, uh, yeah, it's it's really about you know creating more visibility and and also more networking opportunities within within the veganic movement. All right. Well, um, and tell us about your your uh, your good friend Steph, who works with you in this business. What's his background? Yeah, so Steph, uh, he actually studied. Well, he grew up on a farm, and then he studied organic farming. Uh, at a college. And when he was studying organics, he realized that most of it was animal based. Uh, and, you know, he grew up on an animal farm too, on a, on a dairy farm. And, you know, he, he had become vegan and realized that he really needed to learn other techniques. So he actually went around Europe for about nine months and, uh, and England and visited a bunch of veganic farms and volunteered on them. And he just got as many books as he could that had anything to do with veganics and uh, just started putting the techniques into practice. And so I would say that, you know, in North America, he's really sort of that, that pioneer in terms of bringing visibility to it. And uh, when he and I first met, he had wanted to create a network to promote this for a few years at that point. And I was looking for volunteer work I could do in English in Quebec. And so we decided to kind of, kind of combine forces on that and, and create a network to promote this. Um, but yeah, he's um, he's somebody who is extremely innovative and uh, and so, you know, just likes to try, you know, any veganic technique he can find. Uh, so yeah, he's one of the co-teachers for Learn Veganic and he also created uh, the Veganic Agriculture Network with me. Great. Do, do you think that the vegan movement is growing in Canada? Yeah, I think the vegan movement is growing everywhere. The okay. vegan movement is really taking off. I mean, there's, you know, oh, that's good to hear because uh, I've been trying to turn the world vegan, you know, and uh, I want to know that there's some progress. There is some progress. There's oh, definitely good. progress. I think things have come a long way since uh, the early 2000s when I was first trying to learn about it, for sure. So um, do you have a lot of, uh, is there a big vegan community in Quebec? In Quebec, I would say the vegan movement in Quebec is probably centered a bit more in Montreal. Uh, you know, if, if you want good vegan dining, <laughs> Montreal is definitely the city to go to. Um, here in Quebec City, we actually ran a vegan potluck group for about uh, eight or nine years. And so it's it's not, well, the, the university has kind of taken it over now. The, the university uh, veggie group has taken over the, the potluck uh, organization. 
Um, but even in Quebec City, I have to say, it's been very, very slow here. Initially, it was just me and Stefan running potlucks, and there wasn't much else going on. And then eventually, and how many people, people would come to the potlucks? Uh, there are about 40. And then we stopped okay. advertising because the room couldn't hold any more than 40 people. So okay. we just, we couldn't even put up posters anymore. We couldn't do anything to try to make it bigger. I uh, guess no one had anywhere to sit. Um, but yeah, that had a good amount of movement around it. And we found that people said because we were already doing potlucks, they were going to start creating other things. So someone created vegan cooking courses and someone created, you know, a vegan, actually a vegan cheese company was kind of born out of our potlucks in oh, Quebec. Really? Yeah, nut-based nut cheeses. It was amazing. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's an amazing kind of vegan goat cheese, kind of goat cheese style. Uh, it's made with cashews, but it it melts so well. The taste uh -huh. is like spot on. And someone brought it to our potluck. She had made it. She was kind of an aspiring chef at the time, and everyone started saying, "Where can I buy this?" <laughs> so it just turned into this blossoming vegan cheese company. Um, uh -huh. So that yeah, so it was nice to see that when people are kind of brought together, there, there are, you know, new little organizations that can kind of butt off from that or new little companies. So I think there's a lot to be said just for, you know, bringing people together and, and yeah. creating community. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for the good news, Meg, <laughs> that, that the vegan movement is growing in Canada. Uh, you can find Meg Kelly at uh, learnveganic.com. You can enroll to learn more about veganic gardening. Thank you for joining us, Meg. Yeah, thanks so much, Glenn. Okay, please don't forget to subscribe, folks. Bye. This has been the Glenn Mercer Show, where everyone listening turns vegan, regains their health, and annoys their friends and relatives. Find us on YouTube at The Glenn Merzer Show and across all your major podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe.